Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. And welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And this is part two of our Everest podcast. Yes. Uh, in the first part of this episode, we talked about how the British came to identify and name Everest and the subsequent desire to conquer it. Uh, we also covered the earliest climbs up to the point where World War II caused a pretty big gap in expeditions. As the 1940s stretched on, the British efforts to summit Everest continued to be on hold. And maybe hoping to capitalize on this lack of officially organized expeditions and make a name for himself, one man, accompanied only by two Sherpas, one of whom was Tenzing Norgay, illegally entered Tibet to try to climb Everest in 1947. This was Canadian Earl Denman, and he was not super well prepared for this expedition. Not even a little. He didn't have enough training or enough resources. He didn't even reach the North Col, which is usually the first place that climbers make camp on the mountain proper before he had to turn back. Yeah, he had cut-rate equipment. He had only ever trained in um, warmer climates to climb mountains. He just ill-prepared. <laughs> uh, but also in 1947, a successor to the Mount Everest Committee that had run the previous expeditions leading up to this was created, and that was called the Himalayan Committee. And this once again combined the resources of the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographic Societies. Uh, the newly for- reformed committee would have to face not only the brutal and still unsummited mountain, but also the political problem of China closing Tibet to outsiders in 1950. So they would no longer have access from the north uh, to try their ascents. In 1950, an Anglo-American reconnaissance mission led by Bill Tillman and American Dr. Charles Houston explored the approach options from the Nepal side of the mountain. Tillman ended up eliminating the Western Coombe approach as not being a practical option. Although it did end up being used. I think he uh, just thought at the time it was not going to work. Uh, in 1951, there was another unofficial attempt, and this one was by a Danish man named Klaus Becker Larsen. And Becker Larsen took Sherpa guides with him, and he crossed illegally to the Tibetan side of the mountain to try to climb via the north side. But this time, as the group ap- approached the North Col, the Sherpas told Becker Larsen that they weren't going to go any further, and the entire uh, climb was aborted. Basically, they were like, ah, we're not going to help you after all, and he had the sense to go, well, then I'm not going to make it. So that was an end of that. Was it because of conditions or some other reason? Uh, There, when you read about it, it's, and he's written a book about his um, um, adventure, but it sounds like there were multiple factors. They were uneasy about the political conditions. They weren't super confident that he was going to be able to do it. It just kind of all felt very bad to them. Um, one thing that I read that I didn't even list as a source because I was, it seemed not really that, um, um, credible, but it's worth bringing up because there are so many rumors around stuff like this that there was actually a religious aspect to it that they felt that there were some bad omens in the mix. Mm. I think that's largely conjecture, but basically they just said no. <laughs> and that put an end to that. We're done with this. Yeah. Also in 1951, there was another recon mission, and this one was run entirely by the Himalayan Committee. Eric Shipton was once again the team lead. Scotsman William Hutchinson Murray initiated and organized this mission in collaboration with Michael Phelps Ward, both of whom joined Shipman on the expedition. 
Ward had been examining maps and photos from the Royal Geographical Society archives, and he used his research to identify a route up the mountain from Nepal. So he was spending his time while they weren't doing things, just poring over the information that they already had gathered so that he could figure out a way that they could get up the mountain this way since they didn't have the Tibetan side anymore. Also joining were physicist and rocket researcher Thomas Duncan Bordelon and two New Zealanders, beekeeper Edmund Hillary and lawyer Harold Earl Ritterford. And in Murray's account of this expedition, he says, quote, It's worth recording that this is the first instance where the members of an expedition to Everest have chosen themselves, chosen their leader, and initiated the expedition. It is unlikely to happen again. So because these were mounted and funded by a committee, the committee always picked when it was going to happen, who was going to go, who was going to lead it. But this is the first time that guys got together and said, we think we figured this out. Here's what we'd like to do. And they kind of pitched it to the committee and the committee just said yes. Murray's group encountered a whole lot of obstacles along the way. There were leeches that caused septic sores. There were washed out bridges, a hornet swarm, like everything you can think of. Yeah, when you... Read his account of the whole, like his mission report. You're just like, you have got to be, then hornets for. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like an episode of Land of the Lost. I mean, there are so many crazy things that happen to those poor guys. In spite of all that, they were able to detect a feasible path up to the South Coal. And so, and eventually, this whole mission was considered to be a success. Yeah. They didn't, they had never planned a summit on that one, but they identified this new route thanks in large part due to this research that they had been doing. So, it uh, was a, a resounding success. So the Swiss Foundation for Alpine Research sponsored its own 1952 expedition, which was headed up by Edward Wyss Dunant. And Tenzing Norgay was also on this expedition. And while he, along with Raymond Lambert, was able to set a new record in climbing altitude, uh, though they struggled to do so, they were crawling on all fours before they finally reached their limit. Like, these guys were really trying to keep going and they just couldn't do it. There was a second Swiss expedition in the fall of 1952, but the death of one of the Sherpas on the mission, who was killed by falling ice combined with bad weather to put an end to it before they could have any real push for the summit. And there's also uh, a really interesting rumor that uh, there was a Russian attempt on the Tibetan side in 1952, although both Russia denied it had ever happened and China had never acknowledged it. There was allegedly a camp found in 1960 that supported this rumor, though. In a 1994 article for the Alpine Journal, mountaineer Yevgeny Gippenreiter describes the research he attempted into the rumored expedition. He made inquiries with mountaineering organizations, personal contacts, government offices, sports associations, and trade unions, and he found no evidence that any of the alleged members of the Mystery Ascent Party ever existed. Yeah, it seemed like they were completely fabricated names and people, so... Uh, still a rumor, not supported in any way that we can find. Uh, and in 1953, another expedition was led by Henry Cecil John Hunt, Lord Hunt of Landfair Waterdyne, although this impressive moniker is not the one that is most commonly associated with this trip. Also climbing were Robert Charles Evans' deputy leader, George Christopher Band, who was the youngest team member at age 24, Tom Bordillon as the oxygen officer, Alfred Gregory in charge of photography, Edmund Hillary, Wallace George Lowe, Cuthbert Wilfred Frank Noyce, 
Mike Ward as expedition physician, Michael Horatio Westmacott as icefall trailmaker, and organizing secretary Charles Jeffrey Wiley, who was also in charge of the Sherpas. Sherpa Tenzing Norgay was also on the ascent team, and it was his seventh trip up to the mountain. And when this group arrived at Temboche Monastery on the early part of their journey, uh, Tenzing Norgay's mother actually greeted them. She wanted to make sure her son was okay and give her blessing for him to climb, which she did. After making their way to the South Call over the course of many weeks, the first summit push was made by Evans and Bordillon on May 26th. The pair got to the South Summit in the early afternoon, but only made it to 28,750 feet which is 8,770 meters, before depleted oxygen supplies and inhospitable winds forced them to turn back. And three days later, on May 29th, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay headed up from a starting point of Camp 9 at 27,000 feet, or 8,500 meters, which had been set up by Hunt and a team of Sherpas for the pair, while Evans and Bordion were making their bid for the top. So they were kind of prepping for the second go at the top, even as the first one was happening, because they just wanted to be ready. They left camp at 6.30 a.m. and had reached the south summit by 9 a.m. And at one point, Tenzing Norgay had seemed to be in distress, but Hillary found that the line of his oxygen tank had been blocked with ice, and they were able to fix that situation and keep moving. The next two and a half hours were carefully spent... uh picking their way up a 40-foot or 12.2-meter nearly vertical wall of rock and ice, which is now known as the Hillary Step. And then, at last, they had reached the elusive summit of Mount Everest, the highest point on Earth. And that moment, a dream that was more than three decades in the making for the Alpine Club and the Royal Geographical Society, and a century from the time that British surveyors had first seen the mountain, was finally realized. The pair took photos. They looked around briefly for any sign of the lost team, Mallory and Irvine. Uh, Norgay buried Buddhist offerings in the snow, and Hillary buried a crucifix. They ate a mint cake, so sort of like a, uh, the power bar of the past, I guess. Uh, they only spent about 15 minutes up there at the summit. The photos taken were of the view from the top, largely as proof. And Tenzig waving his ice pick with flags of the United Nations, Great Britain, India, and Nepal attached to it. No photos were taken of Hillary. Yeah, uh, Tenzing Norgay didn't know how to work the camera, although he said in subsequent uh, interviews, and I think in a book, that he had offered to try and Hillary had said, no, no, it's fine. So there are no pictures of Edmund Hillary at the top. Uh, the pair had to carefully make their way back down. Their steps had already been erased by wind. And on the way back down from that loftiest of heights, they were met by George Lowe from the expedition, who has made his way up to meet them. And this is when Hillary famously said to him, well, George, we've knocked that bastard off. I love how many pithy quotes surround Everest. <laughs> you have to think like as a an adventurer, you're just at the ready with sound bites. Yeah. Holly, would you like to take a second and talk about a word from our sponsor? So going back to Everest post-summit... Writing about the importance of that first summit for Smithsonian Magazine in 2003, a journalist who had been part of that historic expedition wrote, Fifty years on, it's hard to imagine what a golden moment that was, that the young British queen at the very start of her reign should be presented with such a gift, a British expedition reaching the top of the world at last, seemed then almost magical, and a generous world loved it. The news ran around the globe like a testament of delight and was welcomed as a coronation gift to all mankind. 
It was nothing like so momentous an achievement as that giant moon step the Americans were presently going to take. But it was altogether simple, apolitical, untechnological, an exploit still on a human scale and wholly good. I don't know if I'd go so far to say wholly good. I don't either. But uh, there's some waxing rhapsodic about it. That's very rhapsodic. And there are also a number of issues that go along with this entire (laughs) thing. (laughs) That go everywhere from colonialism to the fact that the whole place is covered in garbage now. Yeah, which we'll talk about in just, in a, just minute. a minute. So neither Edmund Hillary nor Tenzig Norgay climbed Everest again. Hillary was given a knighthood, and Tenzig received Britain's George Medal in recognition of his courage. They were also decorated in many other ways, and certainly I know Edmund Hillary um, went on to you know have endorsement deals, etc. Uh, but one of his ongoing missions and his passions in his life after the summit was the Sherpa people and their well-being. The Sir Edmund Hillary Foundation was formed in the 1970s, and since its foundation, it's funded and supported the development of medical care centers, schools, and conservation initiatives in Nepal. He went back all the time. He brought his whole family. Uh, wasn't so interested in going up the mountain again, but he really wanted to try to do what he could to take care of the people around it. Although Hillary died in 2008 at the age of 88, this foundation and its work go on. Tenzing, for his part, continued to escort explorers and to train climbers. And he eventually founded an adventure tour company, which was taken over by his son after Tenzing died at the age of 72. There have been more than 3,500 people at the peak of Everest since that first summit. And more than 200 people have died trying. And most of those bodies remain in on the mountain uh, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. A litter problem has also, as we said, developed on this once pristine landscape as used supplies are dropped to lighten the loads of climbers. More than 13 tons of garbage have been collected by the Eco Everest Expedition Group since 2008, as well as human waste and a handful of bodies. There's an estimated 10 tons of trash left on the mountain. Yeah, this is where I still have a fundamental problem with it. Yeah, well, it's hard to imagine why people would just leave their their trash there until you read the first-person accounts of how grueling it is to make it to the top. Yeah. Really, people will be taking a step and then having to take multiple breaths before they can take another step because they're so exhausted. Yeah, so lightening the load becomes important. Yeah, lightening the load becomes important, and, and picking all of that stuff up to try to take it back down in a lot of cases becomes a life-threatening attempt. Um like you you can either yeah. leave that stuff there or you can make it down alive and that does not seem like a very good choice which is still part of why I struggle with it yeah because it, it kind of in deciding that you're going to do this thing you're kind of putting your desire over the the mountain i mean this was once a holy place and now there's yeah well and it's after a huge cleanup effort there are still 10 tons of garbage there yeah. well and it's it's still a holy place it's just a holy place that has trash all over it's it now not, yeah <laughs> it's a, a holy place covered in garbage yes and it's also uh extremely expensive to climb everest this was one that I kind of stumbled across in my research and I totally got sticker shock. I mean, I, I, in my head, of course, I was like, yeah, that's gotta be a huge undertaking. Minimum $30,000. Right. Uh, that's also, that, that can go up into the six figures very easily. Yeah. That's also one of the reasons that, uh, when, when you see stories about 
like storms that have killed people that were attempting to get to the summit, a lot of times there's this thread of this was the only time this person was ever going to be able to to try it because yeah. of the amount of money that's involved and the amount of training and that turning back would have meant that all of that was going to go to waste. Yeah, it's um, it's for most people that do it, I would say it's a once in a lifetime thing. There are repeaters, but not very many of them. Uh, and that cost is determined by a number of things. Uh, the permits, the services retained, the ascent path that you use, uh, your travel, your training, what guides you hire, how savvy you are. I was watching one modern documentary about it, and uh, one of the ad- pieces of advice they were giving to people was, if you have anyone in your party who is a native speaker already before you start hiring guides and buying equipment, let them do all the bargaining because they will completely jack up the prices for anyone that's not from the area. Um, it's like wedding planning. <laughs> that's a whole, that could be a whole other episode. I feel ways about those things. Uh, yeah. So in spite of all the cost and all the danger and all the garbage, uh, the summit of Everest has become kind of a bucket list item for a lot of modern mountaineers. And now there are ladders and guide ropes in place and uh, some conveniences that early explorers never had but made possible. Occasionally now, more than 200 people will reach the summit in a single day. Yeah, which is just such a huge number. And that's certainly not an everyday thing. This is a seasonal trip. You can't do it any time. Yeah, the season to get to the top is extremely limited. Like, yeah. That that 200-person that day might be the only day that anybody gets to the summit that year. Yeah, which is why you can have like, oh, 3,500 people have done it. But wait, if 200 people a day are doing it, that's how that math works out. <laughs> it's a very narrow window where 200 people in a day could get up there. Um it's it's very interesting to read about modern accounts of of what it means to people and why they're doing it. Uh, I think the I'm trying to remember which piece I read. One woman described the people in her particular group as largely, not entirely, but largely separating into two types. One was like really kind of wealthy 20-something, almost trust fund babies that kind of were just kind of adrenaline junkies. Mm-hmm. And then older men that were working through some stuff. Yeah. And she was like, I was kind of an outlier because I was like a 30-year-old woman and I certainly had my own stuff going on. But those were, for the most part, she again qualified, not everyone, but those were the primary two groups. Yeah. I kind of wonder if, uh, if like those first explorers, most of them have died now because that was a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I kind of wonder if some of these first explorers, if they were alive today, would be kind of like, yeah, Everest used to be a challenge before they nerfed it. Yeah. You want to have some listener mail? I do. That sounds spectacular. This one goes back. We've had a few listener mails about it, and I I always debate over whether we should read another, but I love them so much. It's another Haunted Mansion one. Uh, And it is from our listener, Joe. And he says, my family went to Disney World when I was six, and I decided I was brave enough to go in the haunted house. My older sister and brother took me while our parents went to the Hall of Presidents. My bravado quickly left me after the stretching room. My sister calmly held me and comforted me, assuring me I would be fine. She got me through the ride while my brother called me a baby and a scaredy cat. We were almost through when the doom buggies came to a halt in the cemetery part of the ride, right next to that skeleton head that kept popping out from behind the tombstone, screaming. 
After a few minutes stuck and me freaking out, the ride operators told us we would have to abandon our buggy and walk out of the ride. My patient sister carried a crying me through the graveyard, which still had all the happy haunts moving about and out to safety. And my brother still teases me about it to this day. Oh, no. (laughs) I hope in a good natured way. I mean, well, I think we mentioned in when we were doing the episode that one of my favorite things in the Haunted Mansion is that moment. At the, at the end of the stretching room at the very beginning, yep. where all of these small children completely just lose it. Yeah, that jump scare is and, great. And, but then that makes me sad. <laughs> when their patient sister is having to carry them outside. That says a lot about his sister, though. That's very sweet. Yes. Uh, we have also had a couple more cast members write us and confirm the ashes being scattered. Yes. Uh, yeah. Please don't do that. We have enough confirmation now, I think. Yes. (laughs) That we can say with certainty people are throwing ashes around the haunted mansion. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I had one of those moments where, you know, Facebook likes to tell you when some friend of yours is talking about something and it's not actually pertinent to you. Yeah. It was, uh, like some friend that had put up one of those articles that was about crazy things that happen in, in Disneyland. And, uh, somebody had was was just going on about how they scattered part of their father's ashes there and how important it was to them that was you know they didn't really care because it was so important to them to know that part of their father was there and I was like no your father got back not there though up. yeah and I had to very forcibly restrain myself from getting involved in that converse- conversation because <laughs> it was not about me yeah yeah it's tricky I mean I completely man nobody understands as much as me that you would want to be the thousandth. Uh, the thousandth ghost living there. Like, I, uh, that seems pretty dreamy to me. But, you know, really, you will go to a vacuum. Yeah. I'm also just sort of in favor of not doing things that inconvenience all the other people on the ride. Exactly. It has to be shut down for the hazmat exactly. team to come in. Exactly. We've I had some, it. Yeah, we, we also had some it. people who were really annoyed because they were like, well, cremated remains are, are not even a hazard because they're basically ash. And I was like, that's, that's not the point. That's still, they're still having to call in a cleanup crew and shut down the ride. Yeah. Yeah. Cause if you think about it, I mean, if they didn't do that, I'll just circle it back to today's episode. It would be like Everest in there. <laughs> it would be just piles of ash everywhere. Oh no. It really would. And nobody wants that. I mean, it would take on a whole different kind of tone. Yes. <laughs> Here we're going through the cremains of lots of people who love the mansion. You don't want that. No. Nobody wants that. If you would like to write us, talk about where you want to put your cremains or whatever else you can think of, or if you were scared by a fabulous ride as a kid, you can do that at historypodcast at discovery.com. You can also connect with us on facebook.com slash history and on Twitter at history. We're also on mistinhistory.tumblr.com and at pinterest.com slash history. If you would like to do some more research about what we've talked about today, you can go to our website and type in Everest. We recommended that last time for the article about dead bodies on the mountain. Uh, but today we'll go to How Climbing Mount Everest Works, which talks a little bit about the history and also about how modern exhibitions do it and sort of what it takes to, to get up the mountain if that's something you want to do. If you want to research that or almost anything else you can think of, you can do that at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Netflix streams TV shows and movies directly to your home, saving you time, money, and hassle. 
As a Netflix member, you can instantly watch TV episodes and movies streaming directly to your PC, Mac, or right to your TV with your Xbox 360, PS3, or Nintendo Wii console, plus Apple devices, Kindle, and Nook. Get a free 30-day trial membership. Go to www.netflix.com and sign up now.